The Seventh Generation on Cambridge 105 Radio. Hello and welcome to the 29th episode of The Seventh Generation here on Cambridge 105 Radio across the city and South Camps. This is the show that looks at all things environmental in our region. I'm Nick Skelton. In one of our previous episodes, we looked at why the climate crisis was also a crisis of justice between developed and developing nations, between generations and between the well-off and the financially insecure. But what about justice for nature? Is there such a thing? And how does it intersect with the needs of humanity? In this show, we look at developments in nature and the law. First, you'll hear an excerpt from a talk by barrister and founder of Lawyers for Nature, Paul Powlessland, at the invitation of a new river action group, the Friends of the Cam, which gave us permission to broadcast this recording. In the excerpt, Paul introduces the concept of declaring nature's rights, from the rights of trees to the rights of rivers. What does this mean? And why is it especially important as we seek a green revolution? We also hear from Tony Booth, one of the founding members of Friends of the Cam, on why they decided to act on these ideas and declare the rights of the River Cam. Finally, I sit down with Jojo Meta, one of the founders of Stop Ecoside, and discover how this organisation has just completed its commission to create a formal legal definition for the crime of ecocide. We find out what ecocide is and how adoption of this definition could be a game-changer for protecting the natural world. So first up, here's Paul Powlessland speaking online from his home in London in June of this year. I'm currently about 200 metres from one of the most famous rivers in the world, the Thames, a river which is the entire reason for this city being here, that has flowed on its course for thousands of years. And yet that river is seen in our legal system as a dead thing, merely as an item of property that is to be used according to human whims and isn't given any rights or standing itself. Now, let's contrast that with companies. For the price of £12, you can go online and create an entirely fictitious entity which has full legal personhood and is accorded rights under the law. And because companies are so ubiquitous in our world, indeed so powerful, We often forget that actually they are entirely fictional. They're just a device made up by lawyers. And they haven't even existed that long. For the vast amount of human history, there were no such things as companies. And now everyone just acts as though it's totally normal. And I give that example just to help you step outside the ideas of what is normal to give legal rights and personhood to in our current system. It's very interesting and telling that lawyers in their wisdom managed to invent a form of legal personhood for an entirely fictional entity hundreds of years before they managed to actually give it to things that really exist, trees and rivers. And not only things that exist, but things which we rely on for our own existence. And to put hundreds of thousands of people, some of our best and brightest people working all hours, acting in service of those companies, before we put hardly any lawyers to work in the service of the natural world. Now, Rights of nature is a broad banner that has been interpreted differently all around the world and actually encompasses a number of separate subjects. The first part is what's called legal personhood, 
So that is the idea that you are recognized as a legal person before the law and you can effectively sue and be sued. When we say personhood, we often think that that's the same as a human being because we are all legal persons. But we also accord, as, a, as I've noted already, legal personhood to non-human actors, whether that's companies or charities. And we accord it to those humans who can't necessarily bring legal actions themselves. So children or people with less mental capacity. So the idea of legal personhood is effectively someone who's recognised in law as being the holder of legal rights. That's the first element. The second element is the actual nature of the rights themselves. So you can be recognised as a legal person, but that's more of a procedural idea. The actual content of the rights matter. For instance, if you're a legal person, but there other people had the right to kill you, um, that it wouldn't necessarily make being a legal person all that great. So it's the actual content of the rights that are also important. But of course, those things are not at all connected. We had legal personhood for adult humans, particularly men, over 100 years ago, but we're still working out exactly what rights we have. What, what does the right to freedom of speech look like? Do we have the right not to be killed through pollution, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so for rivers, we could say, okay, well, we recognise this river as being a legal person, but do we recognise its right to be abstracted at all? To what extent do we allow it to be abstracted? And those, those are the actual content of the rights. And then the third issue, so legal personhood, legal rights, is who is to enforce those rights? Now, different models of nature rights have taken a different approach to this. So some nature rights models just merely put the rights out there and say, OK, we believe that trees have these rights in the hope that activists and people who wish to be enforcing those rights come forward and do so. But other models, particularly in New Zealand with the river I'm going to talk about in a moment, have put forward actual guardians. And still further, some models say, actually, we should put a duty on the state to actually uphold and enforce the rights of trees and rivers. So there's, there's three basic elements to it, legal personhood, legal rights, and what I can term guardianship. And those are all things I'll be coming back to. So the history of nature rights is both a very long one and a very short one. Indigenous societies have, for thousands of years, recognised the idea that nature is alive, that nature is not a dead thing, and it clearly had rights within their society. But the Western tradition has only very recently begun to recognise this and is still figuring out what it might all mean. So the sort of seminal beginning of these ideas in the Western tradition was an article in 1979 by Christopher Stone called Should Trees Have Standing? Standing is an American word for can they bring legal cases effectively? So should they have personhood? And since then, for a number of decades after that, rights of nature was seen very much as an academic exercise. People writing in journals saying, yes, this is a great idea. Of course, we should give trees legal standing, but they're not being necessarily many practical examples of enacting it. That feels like it's shifting around the world, if not quite yet in the UK. But in the last decade, there's been a real blossoming, a, a resurgence of, of interest in rights of nature all around the world. And it may not surprise you to learn that that has started out in countries with a strong indigenous presence, in countries which have, have been the last to lose people with a connection to the land, who understand what I said earlier, that i.e. nature is alive and we are connected to it and it clearly has rights. So in the, the constitutions of a number of South American countries, 
uh, Bolivia, Ecuador, the rights of Pachamama, Mother Earth were recognised in the constitution. Query how much actual practical effect that had. In Bangladesh, a river was recognised as having rights. And in some Canadian Indigenous areas, there's been river-based jurisprudence as well. The one I particularly want to use as an example today uh, is a river in New Zealand. And the reason I want to use it is partially because it's a very good example of all the different elements of personhood and legal rights that I outlined to you a moment ago. But that also because New Zealand is culturally and legally very similar to the UK, although it has now a separate legal system because of the colonial connections between the UK and New Zealand, it has still one of the closest jurisprudence to the UK. So a common law system, it uses a lot of the English legal concepts and yet they have managed to enact the rights of a river in a very radical way. So for anyone who says this is not possible, it couldn't be done, we can just point them to this river in New Zealand and say, look, very similar system, there you are, it's happening. But of course, the key difference, <laughs> again, between the UK and New Zealand is the fact that in New Zealand there was the presence of the Maori people. And this story of how the river came to have rights is, is a long and tortuous one, but effectively, following the peace treaty between the Crown and the Maori people in 1840, there's been ever since that time a great rancour between them over what the terms of that peace were. And in order to settle that, the New Zealand government has in the past few decades sought to bring about different acts of settlement with the Maori people. And as part of that, they demanded that their sacred river, the Wanganui River, was given rights and recognised as a legal person. And so it was done. It was created as a legal entity in the I'm sorry if anyone is uh, Maori or knows how to pronounce Maori here, but I, my pronunciation is not great, but I'll try my best. The Te Awa Tapua Act 2017. And I'll just read to you a little bit of what that act provided. Te Awa Tapua is an indivisible and living whole comprising the Wanganui River from the mountains to the sea, incorporating all its physical and metaphysical elements. The Iwa and Hapu of the Wanganui River have an inalienable connection with and responsibility to Te Awatapua and its health and well-being. The Act also stated Te Awatapua is a legal person and has all the rights, powers, duties and liabilities of a legal person and then went on to say that the river actually owns itself. So this Act created all of those different elements that I spoke to you at the start of this talk. It gave legal personhood to the river, it gave the river ownership of itself it gave it rights, and these are set out at some length in the Act. And more importantly as well, it embraced the Maui principle of guardianship, and it's, <laughs> it's pronounced kaitia kitanga in Maori, which means it's the notion of guardianship. So there were representatives of the Crown and the Maoris appointed guardians of the river, and that was obviously in 2017, about four years ago. So we know it can be done, and we know it can be done in a jurisdiction that has very similar political and legal circumstances to the UK. So the question I want to look at now is why, why should we give rights to nature? Why should we give rights to rivers? In answering that, I would say that we should see this less as a completely unique giant leap into a whole new way of giving rights to things, but instead see it as a one more step on a gradual journey that's been taking place for thousands of years. If we go back to say the Roman Empire, the only people, the only things that had legal rights, legal personhood, were white, adult, wealthy, freeborn citizen men. And since that time, we can obviously see this journey of gradually extending who should be given rights under the law. 
we abolished slavery. We said that women also deserve to be legal persons, have legal rights under the law, and children, and poor people, and black people, and people who aren't citizens. And that journey has been going on for hundreds and indeed thousands of years. And this is just the next step in that journey. And to me, it seems like a very obvious and logical next step. But looking at some of those other struggles to extend who should have legal rights in personhood, we can see there's something of a split between what I can term a spiritual dimension behind the extension of rights and a more practical one. So to give an example of the spiritual idea, I would say that the abolition of the slave trade was a really good example of that. Although there were some arguments that were logical, economic, if I can put it that way, most of the arguments behind the abolitionists were religious, were spiritual. The idea that we were all created equal under God. Am I not a man and a brother? And many of the abolitionists were Quakers and believers in a radical Christianity. And that spiritual element, I think, is a big, for me, a big part of why I believe nature should be given rights. At the other end of the scale, we can see practical arguments. And that's best typified by companies. There's very little spiritual argument behind the creation of companies. No, no one said they believed under the interpretation of Christianity, we should have limited liability companies. It was purely a practical desire that was behind the creation of companies and giving them legal rights and responsibility. Now, what was that practical reasoning? Well, largely, it was to ensure that industrial capital could be deployed throughout the world as quickly and as efficiently as possible in the service of capitalism and development. Even as a, a lefty and an environmentalist, I have to admit that the development that has come hand in hand with extension of rights to companies hasn't all been a bad thing. But of course, that practical argument also now works for the rights of nature. Because is the problem in the world today that industrial capital is not being deployed efficiently and fast enough? Clearly not. The problem today is one of sustainability. And that if we don't radically restructure how our society does things in a very short order in the next few years, it is likely to collapse and cause a huge chain reaction of collapse across the natural world. Therefore, the rights of nature is really important to solving the sustainability crisis. And we can see that in this talk of green industrial revolution, in the over-concentration of carbon and the climate crisis and completely ignoring the ecological element. And if we plough forward in our society, as we are doing now, by saying, yeah, let's, let's reduce carbon at all costs. Let's have a green industrial revolution, decarbonize and turn green our current industrial society, plastering all of the countryside with solar panels and wind farms, stripping and mining everything below the place of batteries and for all the materials we'll need to create all those. We will rapidly accelerate our destruction of the natural world. So I would argue that in a kind of logical, practical sense, we need the rights of nature to ensure that we solve the great crisis that we face in a way that doesn't create a greater one in an ecological sense. That was Paul Powlersland of the activist group Lawyers for Nature. You're listening to The Seventh Generation on Cambridge 105 Radio, and today we're looking at the legal rights of nature. We just heard from Paul Powlersland of the activist group Lawyers for Nature, and he was the keynote speaker at an event at Jesus Green last June, where local group Friends of the Cam held a ceremony to declare the rights of the River Cam. Shortly afterwards, I met up with Tony Booth, one of the founders of this local group, to find out what the declaration means and why the group thinks our local river so needs protecting. I'd like to welcome Tony Booth to the show. Thanks very much for agreeing to do this interview, Tony. Perhaps you could just tell the listeners how you came to be involved and 
Why? Why do we need a Friends of the River Camp? There are a number of organisations who express concern about the river, but many other groups seem to be tied into coming to some collaboration with either the water companies or they feel that there's no alternative to high development in the area. And we felt that there was a need for a group that had total independence, that was utterly free to criticise the polluting activities of the water companies and to say that this massive, unsustainable growth in this area, which makes Cambridge look like a gold rush city, it's being developed in the interests of the developers and estate agents, and it's got nothing to do with the needs of our communities. So we want to be totally independent of that. We're unfunded and we'll take no money from either councils or water companies or developers who we want to be free to criticise. So how did you become involved in this? What made you decide to be one of the founders? I've been very concerned about the state of the rivers around the world for a, a long time. I mean, I see rivers as symbolising something that people everywhere have in common with each other. Settlements always grow up next to a river. Of course, it's not surprising. Everybody needs a, a source of clean water. Lots of people don't have it. People are 86% water. We just are water. And so water has had a great significance in my work as an educator and also in my politics. And I was in a group, which was the Labour Environment Forum, and we gave importance to water and decided to invite Fergal Sharkey to come and give a talk. And we thought that we didn't want to do it just on our own. Let's do it in collaboration with other organisations. So we decided to contact the Federation of Cambridge Residents Associations, and then they thought it would be a good idea to contact CPRE, which is the Council for the, to Protect Rural England, Cambridgeshire and Peterborough. And then there were one or two other groups, and we thought this was best done as a consortium. And out of that occasion, where we had 500 people signing up to come to a talk about the river campaign of an ex-punk rock star, Fergal Sharkey, that this seemed like we, we somehow, by accident, had created an organisation and an impetus. Now, I understand Fergal Sharkey has been one of the major figures defending chalk streams. Yeah. Perhaps you could just talk a bit about what chalk streams are and why they're so important to Cambridge. Chalk streams are a unique habitat, and it happens that 85% of the world's chalk streams are in the United Kingdom many of them in the southern part of England, but stretching up into the Humber area. And they're described as the UK's rainforest or Great Barrier Reef. They're of such significance and importance, and they produce the purest water that's been filtered through chalk seams. And so these should be declared a UNESCO heritage site, and instead they've been treated as if they're just simply an amenity. For, by and large, the water companies to make money without due care to the ecosystems and special nature of the chalk streams. I attended the reading of the Declaration of Rights for the River Camp. Why did you decide to do that? Why did you decide to actually get people to declare the rights? Well, once I'd realised that people around the world were declaring 
river rights. I got interested in the rights of nature in writing a new curriculum for schools. And so in that curriculum, I wanted to give a central place to the significance of sustainability of nature so that we were, through education, protecting the future of our children. And the notion that nature has rights then became part of that work. So when we worked with Paul Poundsland, who we invited to come give a talk about nature rights to Friends of the Can, I realised that there was an opportunity here to actually push recognition of the plight of our river forward through the Declaration of Rights. And I understand that you used for our declaration the basis of other declarations in order to draft this one. Yeah, yeah, there's a, a couple of versions, they're, they're pretty similar, where groups have got together and set out a universal declaration of river rights. But I looked at those and I thought, these are great, but they're couched in quite legalistic language, that if you want people to come together and read something together, it's got to be understandable to everybody, and it needed to be shorter. But I sort of stuck to the framework that they provided and made something that was particular to the River Cam. Well, it was certainly very inspiring, and I, I must say I really enjoyed being with the hundred or so people that were down at Jesus Green reading it out. And it was also really good to hear Paul Powersland from Lawyers for Nature uh, and his talk. One of the difficulties we face in the UK is a political and indeed cultural situation that the environment and the rights of nature are not particularly well thought of. And so if we have to wait for the courts or parliament to give rights to nature, we may be waiting for a long time. And it's why it's so important for ordinary people like you to stand up, decide what the rights of rivers should be, declare them and act as if they exist. And that is a really crucial part, in fact, the most crucial part of what is happening today. Declaring the rights of the rivers, the ceremony that we're having today is great, but if it just ends at that, it has absolutely no effect whatsoever. And in many ways, today is, a, is almost a perfect example of something which has both absolutely no effect, but potentially a massive effect. And the extent to which it's one or either of those is entirely up to you. What worries me is that we've made this declaration that people are concerned about it and certainly people are growing concern as the climate crisis is becoming more and more impacted on people's lives and people are realising more. What about the infringements? What about the water companies or developers or just general people that throw stuff in the river? What can be done about these infringements? Because this isn't a law, is it? It's just a declaration. No, it's a declaration. If I just say something about its relationship to the law, I do think the law is changing. And that every time we talk about the laws of nature, the rivers have rights, this changes the situation in this country, whereby judges and juries are more likely to take nature into account. And we've seen that happening, actually, in the courts. In terms of what happens next... Of course, when you declare the rights of the river, it's a moving occasion. And you've built up, of those people present, some sort of sense of commitment. But we have to work to spread that. But can we actually take people to court? In this country, we can't. I mean, not very easily. I mean, we have to find specific infringements of regulations in order to be able to take people to court. That's true. But I suppose if enough people are 
conversant with the declaration and realise that infringements are happening, it is possible, as guardians, as it were, to have an effect and to make people actually scared of infringing. I was rung up the other day by an official from the Environment Agency who spoke to me for an hour. It's quite clear that in our area, people are getting rattled. The water companies are getting rattled. I noticed what looked like sewage in Hobson's Brook, and I posted it on Twitter. Anglian Water sent down a team to investigate. They know that what they're doing is a disgrace. It's endangering not just the lives of the fish and other animals in in the water, but it's endangering the health of people too. And maybe we're just a part of a national and a global movement that has been a long time brewing, but now it's putting the water companies on, on notice that we really will do something about it and bring their activities out into the open. So in fact, we're kind of shaming them in order to make them do something and to stick to the guidelines and principles that they should be working to. Yeah, we're shaming them. We're shaming the underfunded environment agency. And we're shaming the governments who make promises about cleaning up the rivers and streams in this country and have done precious little about it. Now, you spoke earlier, Tony, of the massive amount of development that seems to be coming our way in Cambridge. The government have already said that they have the money available for the Oxcam Arc. And you mentioned that development will have a huge impact, especially on the rivers, not just the Cam, but the Great Ouse and the, and the streams that feed the Cam as well. Yeah. The plan is to grow the Greater Cambridge area by over 80% by 2050. The national population growth is 16% predicted by 2050. So you can just see in those figures the craziness of shifting. What this means is you're shifting people from places where there already are houses into the south and east of the country, which is the only those people who have a particular interest in um, making money out of land prices and the profit from development would be interested in putting forward such a crazy scheme. So what would the impact be? We already know that the abstraction of the river is probably too much at this present moment. It cannot be done at the moment and the Environment Agency have said that even with present planned development the environment is going to suffer massively. But with the predicted development, there is no way that you can produce it without destroying, certainly destroying the natural function of our river. And you have to then drag water from somewhere else. So you can think about this situation. You're talking about putting houses in a place that doesn't need houses and dragging water from a place that's already got it in order to supply the situation that's growing in our area. And I I think that the people who are currently supporting it have got no idea how it appears. I went on to the Greater Cambridge Partnership website and I was looking at this picture that you see as you go on the site. It says, growth and prosperity for all. It looks like a campaign from the 1950s Conservative Party, like Harold Macmillan. This is anachronistic planning. It takes no care of the fact that 
our councils have declared uh, climate and biodiversity emergencies. It's planning without care of the environment. So if people want to get involved with the Friends of the River Cam, what should they do? How do they get hold of, of the declaration as well? Uh, the declaration is available on our website, which is friendsofthecam.org. And anyone who wants to declare themselves as a guardian of the River Cam will put their name on the website, which we'd love to do. And we will, over the next year, be developing a programme of activities, both campaigning activities, but also simple caring, showing that we, we actually mean what we say and we'll show how we care for the river and, and attempt to clean up various unpleasant areas of, of the river. And is there anything that guardians can do, especially if they see something happening or if they know something going on, what's the best thing that they should do? They can contact us, they can contact the water companies, the environment agency, the councils, their councillors. But I think most of all, we have to, in these difficult times, when it looks like we're overwhelmed by the decisions that are made by our councils, by the central government, the most important thing we can do is to continue to believe that if enough of us join together, we will make a difference. Online, on digital and on FM. This is Cambridge 105 Radio. That was Tony Booth talking about the Declaration of the Rights of the River Cam. And you can find out more about their work on their website, friendsofthecam.org. For our last interview, I met online with Jojo Mater, one of the co-founders of the organisation Stop Ecocide. They've just marked an important milestone this year with the formal declaration of a possible international law of ecocide. And Jojo explained why we need such a law and what the next steps are towards achieving it. Welcome to the seventh generation, Jojo Mehta, who is co-founder and chair of the Stop Ecocide Foundation. Now, for listeners that don't know, perhaps you could tell us what the Stop Ecocide campaign is and how it came about, please. Absolutely. So this campaign was founded by myself and legal pioneer Polly Higgins. I should say the late Polly Higgins. She's no longer with us. Back in 2017, uh, Polly dedicated the last 10 years of her life to this particular initiative, which is the idea of criminalising at the highest level mass damage and destruction of nature. In other words, saying that serious harm to nature should be a crime at the international level. And the public campaign was born in 2017, and it's grown hugely fast over the last couple of years, both in terms of the sort of global movement at the sort of grassroots level and public conversation, but also at the political level. So there are now several governments engaged in this conversation and the possibility of actually criminalising ecocide at the international level alongside genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, is becoming ever more likely as a reality. Now, we do have many laws, including international laws, which aim to protect nature. Why do we need this new law? Of course, there are many environmental regulations in place around the world, and mostly they are in the arena of regulation, so civil law on the whole. There are some environmental crimes, often quite specific ones, and there are even a few countries that have ecocide in their penal codes but have never really used it. What we see here is a problem where the most polluting corporations tend to, rather than 
changing their practices in response to law, they tend to just change their budgets. So you can increase a level of regulation around a certain toxin or around how a certain part of the environment is to be treated. And, you know, those companies will potentially employ expensive lawyers to make sure that they stay either just the right side of the line, or so that they effectively are dealing with a court case as an external cost, you know, a cost of doing business. And, you know, cases that are brought either on the you know, basis of climate or on the basis of uh, environmental negligence and so on, are all important because they all create a kind of a bank of evidence, if you like, and they sometimes create serious naming and shaving for companies. And they can, in the best cases, produce some form of justice in the form of compensation or fines or even sometimes some kind of reparatory orders. However, what they don't tend to do, they don't tend to change practice. And what we're aiming to do by criminalising ecocide is actually to change corporate practice by creating an enforceable deterrent that applies to individuals. Because for a CEO or a key decision maker, they can sort of hide behind the corporate veil to an extent, or political policy, and effectively not be held to account personally. And there's probably nothing that concentrates the mind better than the possibility of actually having one's own personal freedom at stake. And that is what international criminal law does. It targets, if you like, those key decision makers who are the controlling minds of a situation. In genocide, for example, you don't prosecute the foot soldiers, you prosecute the commanders, the controlling minds. And so that is the aim of criminalizing ecocide at the top level. And that is the difference that we feel it could make. You're going to think much more carefully about where you invest, what you insure, what projects you agree to, what projects you issue permits for, if the the result of that project could be severe harm, and that would be a crime. And I think that it's worth highlighting in our dominant Western colonial culture, whatever, we tend to use criminal law to draw moral lines. So we have a very close association between morality and criminal law. You're not going to go to a government and say, you know, can I have a permit to kill a few hundred people for my new business? You know, it'll be great for jobs. I mean, you just can't do that. Not only is that criminally impossible, but it literally wouldn't cross your mind because it's a complete taboo. And effectively, what we aim to do is start to shift serious destruction of nature into that arena, into that kind of moral category. Now, nobody's saying it's the same crime as genocide. Clearly, on an intention level, having the intention to destroy a whole people is thought of as the worst crime. And with ecocide, you're not looking at that level of intention. But when you start looking at the consequences, that's when you realise that actually ecocide does belong at that international criminal level, because the serious consequences of severe harm and destruction of ecosystems, as we are beginning to see in sort of ever more apocalyptic ways, actually threaten not just a people in whole or in part, but civilization as we know it. Okay, so you've been working on this idea of an international law of ecocide for about four years, but there's been a development this year in that you've now, for the first time, formalised a legal definition for the proposed law. Can you tell us about that? There have been working definitions in the past. Polly Higgins had one. There are other groups of lawyers over the years that have come up with definitions of ecocide. But it's always been in a context of a lawyer or a group of lawyers thinking, well, this should be a crime and this is how we think it should look. In this particular instance, we were approached by Swedish parliamentarians who said to us, you know, this is your area of expertise. Could you convene? Could you commission a legal definition that could actually be proposed by states that potentially we could 
take to our government and say, would you be interested to actually propose this at the International Criminal Court? So there's a kind of political pragmatism that's displayed there, but also a political appetite. And that is something that has changed in recent years. We've seen a huge increase in the awareness of the climate and ecological crisis. And we would credit some of the climate mobilizations with a lot of this. So the the school strikes, the Extinction Rebellion actions and so on, which have opened up the conversation in the media. And they've done it in sometimes controversial ways. But what they've succeeded in doing is opening up a conversational space into which we can speak. And I think that that political appetite, you know, that approach to us to say, you know, could you look at a a pragmatic definition that could actually be considered by states, that in turn enabled us to pull in some really top talent, legally speaking. We've had a group of 12 international, highly renowned lawyers working together to draft a legal definition of ecocide. And that in turn obviously gave the whole initiative even more weight and gravitas because then we had political actors looking at what we were doing and saying, okay, you've got some really top lawyers on this. And not only that, but they're from different backgrounds. They're from all around the world. So this is really going to be a potentially, you know, a, a consensus definition. And that's actually what emerged. And interestingly so, because it was a real range of lawyers who were working on that, both in terms of geography and in terms of natural leaning. And what was really incredible, actually, was seeing those discussions evolve over those months. And in the end, what they've emerged with is something very concise and very powerful. And I mean, I can, it's literally one sentence, which I can tell you now. I mean, they've ended up with a core definition of, you know, ecocide means unlawful or wanton acts committed with the knowledge of a substantial likelihood of severe and either widespread or long-term damage to the environment being caused by those acts. And that's actually really very concise, but it's also very powerful and very balanced. And it draws very strongly on legal precedent as well. And it also gives these two key thresholds, which are really important. So one is that somebody must know that they are likely to be creating severe harm with the action that they're taking. So there's a kind of recklessness, if you like, involved in that. And the second one is that those acts must be unlawful or wanton. So they either are illegal already, but perhaps not criminal at that level. And interestingly, for example, over 90% of Amazon deforestation is already illegal. So there's a way in which that sort of meshes with what is not yet properly enforced in existing legal systems. But then you've also got this element of wanton. So if it's not unlawful, then it needs to be wanton. And wanton is essentially a way of saying, you know, even if what you're doing is legally permitted, if the results are actually disproportionately harmful, then nonetheless, you will still potentially be guilty of ecocide. And so it's it's a really interesting combination of the ability to protect from the worst harms, however they occur, but also this awareness that this law must be able to interact with existing law. And that's actually very important when political traction is needed and momentum is needed from many different states to move this forward. And that's hugely exciting. So this has turned out to be a really, really key milestone. And an answer to the question that people have been asking us for so many years, what exactly do you mean by ecocide? Wasn't the fact that it was actually a citizens assembly in France that wanted ecocide to be taken up? It was indeed. And I I think this shows that, you know, actually, if you do ask the people, there's a very clear mandate. So the Climate Assembly in France was convened in response to the Yellow Vest protests. It was the kind of the French government's way of saying, okay, you don't like our policies, come up with some of your own. And 
one of the most popular things that they came back with, you know, supported at 99% by the assembly was a law of ecocide. So it is, I think, for most people, when you discuss it with them, it does feel like a no brainer. It pulls together this sense that many, many people have that nature is being attacked on so many different fronts. And of course, as soon as you understand it, you have a kind of moral response to it. You almost intuitively say, well, of course, it should be a crime. Now, what are you hoping will happen soon, in the next year or five years, in the next 10 years? What, what is your vision? Our vision is to have this beginning to be ratified within four to five years, which actually is quite ambitious in regard to changing international law. But there are steps that are set out for doing that, if you like, within the document that we're aiming to amend. But in the immediate, what we're looking for is a conversation. I mean, what we're actually working on here, we think of it as a global conversation. Because what we realise is that where we have campaigns on the ground, and we have them in many countries now, so I think it's 17 or 18 countries where we have either a communications team or an associate group or th th that kind of thing. And where those teams exist and where those conversations are happening on the ground, in the culture, in that country and in that language, we're also seeing progress politically. So we know that there is a direct correlation and that's really empowering and it's really encouraging because it means that any of your listeners, whatever their walk of life, whatever their the sector that they work in, whatever their interest group or their network, having conversations around ecocide is actively creating a kind of groundswell of conversation that is definitely hitting the media radar and it's hitting the political radar. So that's really important. And our intention is to grow that as fast and as far and as broadly as possible over the coming months so that potentially by next year, it could be as early as next year. We'll have to see how things progress. But at the moment, they're going faster, not slower than we anticipated. But yeah, it could be as early as next year that potentially we have a small group of states willing to actually propose this at the International Criminal Court. Now, I've been pleasantly surprised to find that even in the UK, this discussion has been hitting the Houses of Parliament. It was discussed in the House of Lords. So if you'd have asked me two years ago, I wouldn't have in a million years have thought that that would be the case. So that just gives you a sense of how fast this conversation is starting to move. It's a great vision to hear. What about the COP26 in Glasgow? Are you going to have representatives there? Absolutely. Um, we, we fully anticipate having a, a significant presence at COP26. We certainly expect to throw the best party. Definitely going to be the one everyone's going to want to be at. Ecoside definition party, 200 words to protect the planet. But also, yes, many events. We're looking at um, collaborative events with other organisations. We're also looking at simply having a strong presence there because, of course, there'll be delegates from all over the world. And it's a, you know, it's a big signposting exercise as well because, of course, the serious developments for the International Criminal Court happen in either The Hague or New York, and they usually happen in December. So the COP talks are a, a kind of a major opportunity for amplifying conversations in, in advance of that. So what are the next steps to bring it into law, both here and internationally? We aim specifically for the international level, although of course we wouldn't discourage people campaigning for a national law. One of the reasons actually is that the International Criminal Court is the only mechanism globally that directly accesses the criminal justice systems of its member states. So if this is ratified by a member state at the ICC, it also then has to be incorporated into domestic legislation. So it feels to us like the most practical and efficient way to create a law that works in many jurisdictions. And that's important because, you know, the big transnational corporations that 
perhaps the worst polluters, can hop from one jurisdiction to another. So that is important. So the next steps are really to grow this conversation so that we're growing the external pressure, the civil society pressure, but also to continue with the diplomatic meetings that we've been having. And, you know, a lot of those are behind closed doors, so we can't talk about them until those states are ready to say something themselves. So what you can nearly always assume is that whatever you can see from the outside, things are actually further ahead than is visible. So those conversations continue to happen. And, you know, we aim to galvanize enough political support over the next few months to a year to potentially look at this being proposed or sort of moving forward as an active conversation at the International Criminal Court. So regular people, listeners, what can we do to help? How can we get involved? Where do we send donations? That sort of thing. What can we do, Jojo? Firstly, obviously, visit our website, stopecocide.earth. There's a whole menu there that's called Act Now, and you can just see a whole bunch of different actions that you can take, whether it's as an individual or an NGO or an organization. And there's lots of materials there as well for potentially spreading the word. You can, of course, sign up as an Earth Protector, which is uh, essentially a paid up member of our campaign, where you can put in a donation. It could be one off or it can be monthly. And in becoming an Earth Protector, you actually sign a document, which is a legal document. It doesn't oblige you to anything. But what it does do is it puts your signature to a rather beautiful statement that says that you believe all the inhabitants of the Earth have the right to peaceful enjoyment and that serious disruption of that is a crime. Effectively, it's your kind of moral, in principle, conscientious support of criminalizing ecocide. So that's a really beautiful thing to do. And the other nice thing about becoming an Earth Protector, and I say this to any of you out there that have larger networks or your own profile in any way, is that unlike a usual membership of a a charity or an NGO or whatever, your name is visible. So it is naming your colours to the mast. There is a little search box, you can go and find the people that have signed up. And that's actually really rather beautiful if you do have a following, because you can tell them, look, I've gone and signed up, and they can go and see your name on there. So you know, you'll find Paul McCartney on there, for example. And I suppose on a really simple, basic level, talk about this, talk about it. It's exciting. You know, there's a world of crisis out there. And here is a very concrete strategic intervention that can be achieved, that already has momentum, and getting behind this and talking about it and communicating with your elected representatives about it could be hugely powerful, particularly at this moment while the conversation is really live. So yeah, jump in there, tell everybody about Ecocide and how it needs to become a criminal law. Great. Thanks so much, Jojo. You've been really great today. I really appreciate the way you've explained everything. Thanks for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. That was Jojo Mehta of Stop Ecocide. And you can find out more about their work by visiting stopecocide.earth. As always, we'll include the relevant links to today's show on our show description on the Cambridge 105 Radio website and on our Mixcloud page, where all our other shows are available to listen anytime. We've only got a few minutes left now, so we wanted you to hear the final bit from barrister and lawyer for nature Paul Powlersland's inspiring talk for Friends of the Cam. In this part, Paul explains how the act of declaring nature's rights, even without government legislation, is a crucial step towards protecting our precious natural world. So here's Paul Powlersland. And just before I finish, I'd like to just give a practical example of how this is working out on the river roading. I've lived on a boat for a decade now, and five years ago, I found a river in East London that was very unloved. The third biggest river in London after the Thames and the Lee, but no one was in charge of it. No one cared. It was full of rubbish, full of sewage. 
and I moved there to set up a community to restore it. So we now have a community of boats there committed to putting in time and money to the restoration of the river. There's your guardianship there. And we now have a Facebook group, I think over 2,000 people now, Friends of the River Roading. And even that just by itself has fundamentally changed how the river is seen because local people now know that river is loved and that river is cared for. And so they start to love and care for it too. You get people posting pictures like, I saw this bird and look at this thing here and I went for this walk along the roading, it's beautiful. Even that has shifted fundamentally how the river is seen. And recently we organised a litter pick day to take rubbish out of the river. And whilst on there, we found a sewage discharge, a huge tens of thousands of litres a day going straight into the river. Probably been happening for about a year because nobody's checking. And so even acting in the current legal framework, I then told Thames Water about it. They came, fixed it. It happened again a week later. And we got local politicians and people involved to try and say this is not acceptable. And then wrote a letter to Thames Water threatening private injunction proceedings on the basis of their infringement of the property rights of the River Roading Trust, which is the, the moorings we operate. So again, using whatever legal mechanisms we can under the current law to protect the river and uphold its rights. And whereas normally even if they'd fixed the leak, it would just get thrown into a bottom of a pile. The EA wouldn't care. We had a meeting with the sustainability director of Thames Water and they've now bumped up the necessary infrastructure work to stop this happening again. And I said in that meeting, I will always act peacefully, but be under no illusion. I love this river. We love this river and we will do whatever we can to peacefully protect it. Your days of putting sewage in it without any consequences are over and you must believe that. And even that within the current system has a power. I hope that through the power of guardianship and these declarations and acting peacefully and purposely to uphold those declarations, it will unleash a real power to protect and restore our rivers. That was the barrister Paul Powlersland. From myself, Nick Skelton and all the team here at The Seventh Generation, we hope you've enjoyed this episode and also been inspired to stand up for nature's rights. If you or your friends would like to listen to this episode again and previous ones, you can find them all on our Mixcloud page. If you go to www.cambridge105.co.uk and then look for our show page, The Seventh Generation, you'll find a link there. And that will give you all the shows that we've done previously on our Mixcloud page. So once again, thanks for listening and goodbye.